0: This is Cultural Debris with host Alan Cornett.
1: Welcome back to Cultural Debris, the first episode of the new year. I pray your new year and epiphany were peaceful. It is nice to be back with you in 2021. We were blessed with a rare white Christmas here, and we all snuggled in with a fire in the fireplace. While the world has been in tumult, we had one of our most enjoyable Christmas seasons I remember. If you have not done so, please take a moment to leave a five-star rating and perhaps a positive review for Cultural Debris. Many of you have said nice things, and I would love for you to share that. It may not surprise you that new by which I usually mean new to me, books have arrived at Cultural Debris Headquarters. A book I received for Christmas is The Eight Doors of the Kingdom, Meditations on the Beatitudes by Jacques Philippe. I recommended his book on searching for and maintaining peace in an earlier episode. A little gem of a volume I came across just yesterday is a hand-sized book called Japanese Papermaking, by Kiyofusa Narita, published in Tokyo in 1954. I've long had an appreciation for the book arts and couldn't resist rescuing this bit of cultural debris. It even has some paper samples inside. You can see some photos of it on my Instagram feed. Last year, I started a little online book exchange, which I christened Yola Bacaflog, After the annual Icelandic Christmas tradition of the Christmas Book Flood, my online friend Stuart King sent me a book by Charlie Lovett called The Lost Book of the Grail. Stuart wrote in a note, I'm so convinced you'll like this book, I wonder that you've already read it. He needn't have worried because I didn't know the book or the author, but I devoured it during Christmas time, one of the most fun reads I've had in a while. It's a literary mystery involving the Holy Grail, King Arthur, and an old English church. The protagonist is a book collector and loves things like Vanity Fair prints. I recommend it, absolutely. After the holiday season ends, we drift into the ordinary time of winter. A book I find myself enjoying this time of year is called First Garden and is by CZ Guest. You need the original edition, which has illustrations by Cecil Beaton and also an introduction by Truman Capote. It's a beautiful book worth getting for yourself and also sharing with a good friend. A Twitter friend of mine, the poet Jane Greer, shared a poem with me that I want to share with you. Lesson Learned on a Long Walk Tonight there is a ring around the moon as it reclines in ice a pale sliver. So big the moon is halfway up the sky, and still the circle touches ridge and river. Look at the circle, and it disappears. Paleness and deepness mingle and diffuse. Look at the moon, the circle calms itself. To renounce does not always mean to lose. Give Jane Greer a follow on Twitter, at North Dakota Jane, And also check out her new book of poetry, Love Like a Conflagration from Lambing Press. A few years ago, I was traveling back from India through London, and this episode's guest had the idea that while I was there, I should travel down to visit R.L. Allen Bibles, one of the finest Bible publishers in the world, and then write up a post about it. I ended up taking a series of trains and buses from my hotel to a remote part of London to meet with Ian Metcalf, the then new owner of R.L. Allen. It was quite an adventure, and you can read about my visit on Bible Design Blog. Find the link in show notes. My guest today is indeed an old friend, J. Mark Bertrand. Mark is the author of the Roland March Mystery Trilogy and the purveyor of the aforementioned Bible Design Blog. But Mark has seemingly been lying low the past few years, and in this podcast, you'll find out why. We explore what Mark has been up to, whether we'll see any more books from his pen, and the inspiration he found at a coroner's convention. Plus, we talk Bibles, including the impact of Bible Design blog, and the revolution of Bible publishing over the past 15 years. We touch on the Bibliotheca Reader's Bible and the new Word on Fire Gospels, and discuss if the latter might help pave the way for a renaissance in Catholic Bible publishing, like we've seen in Evangelical Bible publishing. And if you're interested in sticking around, Mark and I talk about fun things, well at least fun things to us, like briefcases and book shopping. We both share our most serendipitous bookstore finds, and revel in the joy of disordered bookshops a conversation I finally had to make myself end. I hope you enjoy it half as well as I did. Reverend Mark Bertrand, welcome to Cultural Debris. Thank you. You, according to the Weekly Standard, are a major crime fiction talent. So, what are you up to these days? are you Are you doing crime fiction?
0: I am. it's It's been a while since I've written one of my novels, and uh, I am, let's say, working my way back in. I've had other interruptions in life that have uh, intervened and made it more difficult to devote myself fully to writing. but, Uh, The last couple of months, I've been turning my attention more and more to creative pursuits. And so, yeah, I hope to uh, be deeply immersed in a new novel uh, shortly.
1: Oh, that's that is very good news. I want to get back to that. But let's let's take a pause and talk about those life interruptions. So uh, it wasn't that long ago, or at least it doesn't seem that long ago that that we had the Bible Design blog uh, plugging along, and you had you had novels coming out, and then then poof, it was like Mark Bertrand went dark. And so, so what happened?
0: Yes. Well, what happened was this unexpected uh, curveball into uh, ministry; hence, the the Reverend that you alluded to earlier. And so I was actually ordained as a Presbyterian minister in early 2017. And that has been uh, wonderful, but also, as you can imagine, uh, quite disruptive to the life of leisure that... Uh, I, I the, can't the book imagine was. that, actually.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, right. So I've had to, to reorder some priorities a little bit, but I have a... Uh, a recurring dream. Maybe it's naive, but that some at some point I'll I'll find the balance.
1: So, do you do you envision maybe sort of like a, a Presbyterian Father Brown uh, idea? Do you think you could go with that?
0: <laughs> I don't know. You know, it's it's funny. As much as I love Chesterton and as much as I love Father Brown, you know, when it comes to uh, I don't my ideological commitments in crime fiction. Uh, they're 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 a little bit different, you know, and I think that uh, I, I although sometimes I do tend to maybe be, as Raymond Chandler was, too dismissive of the classic uh, stories of detection. I think what interests me in the genre is probably a little bit different. Uh, not to mention, I don't have the the gift of, uh, Jesuitical logic at my disposal, and so I'm not sure I could craft uh, the stories that uh, you find Father Brown in.
1: Well, you know, one thing you you could start introducing tea into your into your detective fiction. I think <laughs> I think that would take you a long way.
0: Right, right. There's there's definitely an absence of of tea and 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 really beverages in general in my work.
1: So. <laughs> so tell me some about about the ministry I know that you uh, you had served as a an elder in the Presbyterian Church in right. past times and so so now you've moved into a pulpit role I guess we would say
0: right you know I always tell people this is the last thing that I expected to happen and if I had known uh, this was going to happen I would have done everything I could to avoid it uh, I did go to <laughs> seminary for a while after getting out of grad school, you know, so I did my uh, MFA in creative writing. And then, I don't know, within a year or so I was back in seminary, but it was really, uh, I, I had no intention of, you know, putting that knowledge to use, except in in one sense, which was when we were in grad school, you had to take uh, these two courses on what they called modern thought. And it, it, you could have just as easily called it intro to Nietzsche and it would have covered the same material. But the oh, idea oh, was, oh. you know, if if you're going to be a writer, you need to have ideas, you know, something that you're, you're writing about. And so, uh, I came out of that experience really wanting to be able to explore, you know, these theological concepts. And so, you know, I went to seminary just as a way of, of digging deeper, you know, studying those ideas so they'd be uh, more available to me as, as an artist really. And so, you know, that was my interest. And then come, you know, really two decades later, uh, it turns out that uh, as they say, God had other ideas. And so I was uh, called to ministry and ordained and yes, I do, uh, preach in the pulpit. And it's, it's a strange combination, you know, for people to to uh, be a crime novelist and also a pastor. And it occasionally has resulted in unusual situations where people, you know, overhear their pastor plotting to, to <laughs> murder others, you know, and that sort of thing. But, but on the other hand, you know, as a Presbyterian minister, you know, with the uh, creedal commitment to human depravity that goes really well with being a crime novelist. So there are some areas of
1: overlap. Well, that's right. And you you actually wrote an article about sort of the theological implications of of detective fiction several years ago. That's uh, that folks can go read, and I'll link that in in show notes.
0: Right. I think you know, like just the 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 overview. That kind of the the kernel of that is. Usually when people try to justify why, especially religious types, would be interested in crime fiction, it often centers around the idea of the restoration of order. You know, so there's a a kind of Eden that is interrupted by the serpent of murder, and then the detective comes in to uh, discover the truth and restore that order, but my interest is very different because the kind of fiction that speaks to me is, I would argue, more uh, more plugged into the idea of human corruption. So a lot more skeptical of the initial order and the ability to restore it. So the kind of thing you see more in like, let's say, American uh, noir fiction, where, you, you've got a a detective, you know. Chandler would would say a kind of white knight, uh, who is not himself a corrupt or mean person, but a quester for truth. But he's surrounded by people who are touched by, uh, you know, what we would call like systemic corruption. And you know, the cops aren't the the bumbling incompetence that they are in Sherlock Holmes. They are uh, corrupt. You know, they are self interested and that sort of thing. And so it's a different kind of story, I think. And although there are points of similarity, um, certainly in my own work, what I found really compelling was just just the sense of um, how the crime impacts these various layers of an already corrupt system, an already corrupt culture. And so uh, my... You know protagonist is a much less perfect crime fighter and uh, sometimes susceptible to running with the wrong ideas and and reflects more this sense of of the world as not uh, a perfect order that occasionally goes off the rails when people do things is extremely bad, but one where even our sense of of right and wrong and the way things ought to be in order are also corrupt.
1: Right. It's, it's more of a real world view, I guess, or I'm, I suppose some may say a pessimistic view. of
0: sure, things. But... Sure. And, and right. And I would say, yeah, it's, it's both of those things. And, and again, it doesn't necessarily do justice. It's not as if father Brown is going through the world thinking everyone is basically good and, and we just need to find this one bad apple to restore order. Um, obviously, when we make these comparisons, you know, we paint with a broad brush. But I, sure. I think there's just something about that, uh the, the, the ideas that interested me in fiction and the ideas that continue to kind of drive my interests have more to do with, you know, the problem of evil, the, the problem of knowing epistemological, you know, how, how, how do I know who did it? Not just revealing the the right. criminal, but but dealing with that sense of, uh, like, are we really sure this is what happened? So, those are, I guess, the mysteries that fascinate me.
1: Well, let's let's move that discussion or shift that maybe a little bit to to kind of a, a discussion of Christ, what Christian fiction ought to be. Sure. You and I, I think you sure. and I have similar ideas about that. But a lot of times we've seen, especially, oh, the past 50 years or so, maybe this uh, quote-unquote Christian fiction that is, I guess, very self-consciously so, and tends to be ghettoized in Christian bookstores and uh, has a sort of a stereotypical type cover on it and this sort of thing. Yet, uh, we would not really think that that's expressing the best of Christian thought, perhaps. So so sure. what 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 is your understanding of what Christian fiction, if we can co- even call it that, ought to be?
0: You know, I think that the, the fundamental, Truth about the the sort of project of Christian fiction is that, like all uh, fiction, it ought to be a quest for truth. You know, an artistic quest, but a quest for truth. And I think that's something that you know, fiction writing has in common with every vocation. You know, in, in one way or another, every human calling. There's a, a, a way it ought to be done, and there's kind of a form. That suggests itself in in creation that ought to be pursued, and then there's also a a truth of it, you know, a, a testifying to the way the world really is, and what we tend to find uh, offensive, let's say, is a representation of reality where the truth is elided. For ideological reasons, so there's certain things we will not admit are true or we will mischaracterize so that our uh, you know the the moral precept that we want to teach comes through. And of course, this isn't by any means limited to uh, you know, Christian or evangelical art. I, I think probably the area where we see, Right now, kind of the most anxiety over these kinds of concerns is with, you know, really with writing in general, and, and kind of that question of, uh, I'm, I'm using air quotes here, but woke fiction. You know that <laughs> that uh, you know a lot of people are worried that that the the big awards or whatever are being doled out based on the political message of the work, not on you know it's it's artistic. Quality or something like that.
1: I, I can't and, imagine something like that would
0: happen. Right. a hypothetically, <laughs> pretend <laughs> such a world sure. could exist. But, but I think you know, there's, there's obviously when you step back, we understand it's possible for those two things to come together, right? You could have a very, uh, uh, you know, a novel of ideas, a work that has a, a really definite perspective, a moral perspective, but also it's a great work of art, and. Ideally, those two things should go together. You think of Tolstoy or you think of uh, Flannery O'Connor would be a good example of of someone who, I think has a definite sense of of what the world is and and how to live in the world. and also sort of a, a an astonishingly uh, perverse and interesting artistic approach to communicating that. right. So th- so they're not incompatible, but all too often, Uh, it's easy to think the most important thing is to arrive at the right answers. And so it's, you know, ironically, uh, if you've been having these arguments about what is Christian fiction for, you know, 20 years, then the kinds of arguments that we're having now about fiction in general are very relatable. You know, it's, it's uh, the same ground. It takes me back to my grad school days when a good friend of mine was, was uh, in, we were in a workshop together, so fellow students, and he'd written what I thought was a really clever, uh, but very, uh, you know, political kind of story. And uh, you know, we would see it today as kind of representing his, his ethnic identity. And, um, and, and I'll just put my cards on the table. Um, I may not agree at all with the theme of a work, but I have a lot of uh, tolerance and openness towards things I believe are false if they are done with beautiful craft, and great cleverness and that sort of thing. Not that I accept lies as long as they're told beautifully, but but I'm willing to put up with a lot. And so, Uh, This was a work I I really admired and found fascinating, but my professor uh, spoke to my friend about this and and actually cautioned him, you know, and said this path of a sort of narrow-minded political kind of writing is something you want to avoid indulging in. And the argument... um, was that that in doing this, you were closing yourself off to this sort of broader truth. You know, there's a deeper perspective uh, to be observed. And and so I carried that with me and, and my conflicted feelings about that because I had liked the story and uh, and appreciated sort of the clever way in which its message had been communicated. And I was a person who at the time, you know, had ideas I'd like to cleverly get across to the reader and convince them that I was right and they were wrong, and <laughs> that sort of thing, you know? And and so I struggled with those words of my professor. And the thing is, he was, a, I guess at that time would have been in his 60s, kind of a Jewish New York intellectual type guy and and had a deep understanding of... Uh, you might think of as sort of a an ethnic perspective on writing. You know, he'd come out of this great tradition of Jewish writing, and and so it wasn't as if he was devaluing those markers of identity. But I think it's just that his experience of what you could do with that was more profound than just scoring these little points. And so I would say, when you come to this question of you know what should the Christian novel be, or something like that. Uh, you sell the Christian tradition short if the answer is, you know, a, a a sentimentalized tale that is reluctant to speak too frankly about the world as it really is. Right. And so I, I I just I want to push not so much for, you know, here are the you know the ten characteristics of Christian fiction or anything like that, but but to say. Uh, All you need to know about it if you're trying to write, you know, fiction that is Christian is that your job is to tell the truth to the extent that that you're able and the rest takes care of itself.
1: So if if we're talking about a more politicized literary world, which I think seems to me as an outsider to be the case, not only in, in fiction, but everywhere, uh, is is genre writing uh, maybe an easier place to hide? Since you're a, a, a quote unquote genre writer,
0: I don't know that there are any good places to hide. But but the the great thing about writing of any kind, but I think especially if writing fiction, is that it's not typically done by people whose hope is to avoid detection. You
1: know. That, <laughs> that,
0: uh, that, you know, regardless of, I mean, the reality is that the world is inhospitable to artists, regardless of, of their perspective. And it's always a mistake, I think, to assume that you're being singled out when in reality, it's difficult for everyone. And And a, surprising, a surprisingly broad number of people can relate to some of the struggles. That it's strange how uh, everyone assumes that they're their uh, opponents are the ones who are welcome in the public square and they are not, but I don't want to minimize the challenges. I just want to say there's a, a, a perspective let's, let's say in which I try to see these things. And so um, for me, uh, I, I'd say no, like genre writing, if anything, I think especially these days, there's perhaps a tendency to uh, To see more, I hate to say like ideological conformity, but, but I think like anything that has a definite, uh, again, air quotes, fandom associated with it is likely to be policed in certain ways that, uh, that, you know, uh, uh, maybe a more free-flowing artistic expression really isn't. So the expectations are... Are, are more definite. And so you, you see that in crime fiction, definitely, where you can look at different uh, trends in crime fiction and you'll say, Oh, the, you know, this book clearly feels like it's from that period in the, in the nineties when all of the plots really sort of disguised efforts to engage in social issues or, you know, that sort of thing. So I think you see that in genre writing as well. Uh, but my hope is, and, Again, uh, I'm one of those sort of naive cynics uh, that that artistry overcomes those things. I know for myself as a reader, I don't decide who to read based on their their ideology you know I don't decide who to read based on their politics and uh, as a result, the kind of reader that I want to speak to is is the one who, like me is looking for something more than just to have your i don't know to have your views affirmed or to have them challenged or whatever
1: so the, your your initial trilogy was uh, with a police detective yes is, uh, can you give us a, a little hint on where uh, where you're thinking on your new novel? you I, I understand you you may not want to give complete revelation on this, but, uh, well, I can explain.
0: tell you who the killer okay. is.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I, I, uh, so it's interesting how this works. So there's a, a, a certain kind of moment that I went through. I decided, you know, I think I'm probably done writing, uh, detective stories with a police protagonist, uh, just because, you know, you got a lot of different interests. You want to do a lot of different things, and and that's a kind of book. It's easy to kind of get stuck in a rut with. But at the same time, these stories come to you. And I had uh, a, a really strange experience where the 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 local coroner had read my books and got in touch with me, and we got together for lunch. And you know, although I've written some you know what i hope are pretty convincing like autopsy scenes and that sort of thing i am not the kind of person who's interested in going and witnessing an autopsy and of <laughs> course you know having lunch with the coroner you've got to be careful because that that was you know his invitation was come and and you know sit in on an autopsy and you know i'm at this point getting really nervous how do i how do i communicate the fact that that i i would rather go to the dentist for, you know, painful dental work than see you at your job. But, uh, but I was able to get out of that, but what I was not able to get out of and and didn't want to was, was uh, participating in a conference that he hosted and uh, a forensics conference. And so uh, it was, the theme was uh, decomposition and I spent some time there and, and it was fascinating. Uh, a, a strong dose of uh, medical examiner humor, which is uh, a, a unique genre. All its <laughs> yeah, own. I'm,
1: I'm sure it is.
0: A lot of crime scene photos and things like that, that uh, I looked at and thought, you know, thank goodness for zombie movies, because I would not have been able to look at this stuff if it weren't for zombies. But now uh, I can look at the real thing and think yeah, it doesn't look realistic, not as convincing as as Hollywood, but uh, <laughs> but in in the midst of all of this, I was taking copious notes and and some cases that were alluded to kind of stuck in my mind over the years. and and the kind of writer I am is sort of like a, I, I you know, some grit gets stuck inside my head and and a year or two, three years later, I convince myself there's a pearl, and I, as a result, have a lot of these kind of uh, a lot more crime fiction stuff that I want to do, but at the same time, other kinds of things. And and the question is how to fit it all together. So, uh, I've, yeah, I, I mean, it's it's all uh, a big wonderful. Mess. I actually over the summer, you know, my my COVID summer project was working with a friend on a a television script, and writing for screen was something I'd never done before, and and that was a, just a huge amount of fun. And so now I also have in the back of my mind this idea of hey, maybe do more of that. So. Uh, who knows? I mean,
1: that was the direction Faulkner went when he needed a little money. So that uh, right, could, right, following his footsteps.
0: Yeah, no kidding. I mean, I, 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 I'm one of those people who's who's been willing to sell out, <laughs> has attempted to sell out, and somehow my efforts to sell out don't sell out. You know, and so I've managed to kind of be a sellout and a starving artist all at once. So I, so I would the, love the to pursue. worst of
1: both worlds.
0: Yes, exactly. <laughs> I'd love to pursue a Faulknerian trajectory, but uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not positive that's on the cards.
1: Well, you, you probably need to start uh, telling people war stories uh, from your days yes. in, the, in the RAF and in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to the Cultural Debris Podcast. All right. Well, let's shift gears a little bit and talk from there. Let's talk a little bit about Bibles. So you okay. you are not only uh, an expert on uh, on detective fiction, but also the the man behind the long running Bible Design blog, uh, and uh, and have been pursued by many for your insight. So where where does that stand right now to, with Bible Design blog?
0: Well, you know I. I expected, with the lockdowns and all of that kind of thing, that this would give me time to go back and and do some of the things that I'd not managed to to keep up with. I think if you look at Bible design blog online, uh, i, I th- it's I think it's been a year since I've put up any new content. Uh, and so I had really ambitious plans, and none of them have come to fruition yet. So I'm still hoping to kind of find the the space in the schedule to come back to that. Uh, it's also interesting, though, because of course the the world of Bible publishing has changed so much from the the days when I began to write about Bible design that um, you know, it's it's a very different kind of world. And, and, you know, I'd say for, for the most part, for the better in some maybe small ways for the worse, but it's um, it's definitely a different animal. And so I, I think what I have to say about things has also maybe changed a little bit over time. So, sure, you know, at the, at the beginning, it was kind of, you know, it really was a, about cultural debris, you know, I mean, this was, uh, it seemed to me the not the twilight years of of bible publishing but but more like the you know the Roman Empire has fallen, that happened about a hundred years ago but uh, right. there's still there's still a little bit of something to to write about that's that hasn't fully departed yet, and so you know Bible publishing by the late nineties was uh was about as bad as it could be from my point of view in terms you know design had stagnated the way bibles were being designed as someone whose first job uh, was typography i just hated to see the the lack of uh energy and creativity going into what is the most complex uh design problem in in popular printing and at the same time the quality of of the way Bibles were made had just declined utterly so that uh, if you went into a, a retail store, which still existed at that time and purchased a, you know, so-called nice Bible, what you were getting was, was a really cheaply and badly made thing that was um, sort of gussied up to look as if it were a luxury product. You know, and and so it was really the the worst of both worlds, and and I think a poor reflection on the content of that book. So,
1: well, you had I, it had become yeah. just completely commodified. Really, it just yes. it, it wasn't there. The people putting them out didn't uh, clearly didn't care about them. Uh, I'm sure some That's of right. them would be would be insulted. I think, yeah, it's right. It's it was clearly yeah. true
0: yeah, I think it's it's the kind of neglect uh, or not caring that comes like from not knowing there's something to care about, right? so so the people involved were still passionate about uh, the Bible and about getting Bibles out there and that sort of thing and 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 passionate about people reading them, which was why there was a new translation every week. right. But the idea of how the Bible should be designed and how it should be printed and all of that, I think that had sort of been taken off the table and it's like, well, the Bible is just meant to look the way it's always looked and they're meant to be made as cheaply as we can make them. uh, But also they should look fancy, you know, something like that. And so, so I think, you know, for me, as I was writing, what I was trying to do was, was really, I mean, almost an elegy to this lost world where uh, Bibles were, were you know lovingly printed and produced on on great paper and bound well and 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 used. And so it started off that way. And over time I think I became more uh, aware and interested in the various possibilities. You know, as a typographer, I kind of got more interested in questions of how the Bible should be designed. And and then of course you know this huge anxiety swept publishing when ebooks first became popular that printed books were going to die and so that made the conversation even more interesting because one of the huge obstacles to innovation in bible design was this idea that that a single printed bible needed to be suitable for every possible use so it couldn't just be a book meant to be read. It also had to be a book really good for reference, looking things up, that sort of thing. And I think as as you know, Bible software and apps on smartphones and that sort of thing became ubiquitous, suddenly for the average person, what they wanted out of a physically printed Bible was a little bit different. And
1: so you know, the technology real, really freed the publishing industry to start thinking about making good Bibles again. I think it did. It removed a mental barrier for them.
0: That's right. Because I think, uh, you know, we first started to see like printing and binding improve better quality uh, leather, you know, sewn bindings instead of glued bindings, stuff like that. But at a certain point, it could have stopped there. But I really do think that the rise of uh, you know, digital Bibles and also kind of digital innovations in, uh, on the back end and how books are designed, which made it a lot easier to do new layouts and that sort of thing. It made it possible for publishers who'd been pretty skeptical about the demand for a Bible that was just sort of meant for reading and nothing else. Suddenly, they could see consumers interested in that sort of thing. And so, you know, the last few years, you've seen just a huge amount of um, interest in reader-friendly Bibles that uh, either remove or at least uh, de-emphasize all of the critical apparatus and the, you know, the verse numbers and the the other kind of references and interruptions and that sort of thing to give you something more like uh, a text meant for immersive reading, which until you know, the last few years, editions like that, if they existed at all, they were always highly specialized and hard to find. And now uh, they've become, you know, relatively common and, and some quite good ones. And as a result...
1: So what? Well, go ahead, and finish that.
0: I was just going to say that, you know, I began this project as a kind of pessimistic, uh this is the world that used to be. And now, ironically, find myself in what what starts to look like a little bit of a golden age of Bible publishing. Right.
1: I I, I think you're right about that. What what was the year that you, do you remember the, the year you started uh, Bible Design Blog?
0: So I think officially 2007, because that's when my book, Rethinking Worldview, came out. And I'd been writing about Bibles for a, at least since the early 2000s on my regular blog. And when that book came out, I thought, it's distracting to have all this Bible content. I'm just going to create a new blog and put it all over there. And honestly, I didn't expect to update it very often. Uh, like now I, I just thought, you know, there's me and maybe five other people who are interested in this. But once I did that, suddenly it just became a, a, a hub for this sort of thing and became hugely popular.
1: Well, now I think I've, i made first contact with you when you were, before you had started the Bible design blog, when you were still just blogging about it on your regular, on your regular site, um, because I had a new Testament that I used that was, that was coming apart and I wanted to have it rebound. Right. So I was trying, I was trying to find the best way of doing that. And of course this was in the early days of, the internet. (laughs) And, and I, and I came across some posts that you had done about Bibles and about rebinding Bibles, I think.
0: Right. Yeah. and, And that's another great example though, of, of where things have just gotten so much better. I mean, back then the options were pretty, you know, limited and, you know, there was, there was really no prospect of, of getting a book rebound and have the outcome be as good or better than for example something you could get from RL Allen or you know a high-end quality uh, bible publisher whereas now we even have you know I, i'd say a proliferation of rebinding options you know individuals shops that sort of thing who actually do work that's that's really great in quality and so uh, it, it's for the bibliophile, it is truly uh, satisfying on every level, you know from from design to production and even to these uh, the ability to to have a book lovingly rebound. Uh, it all it warms my heart to see how far we've come in in really a short space of time
1: right. I think if if we look back, I mean a lot of the a lot of the priorities that that you pushed in in the early days of Bible Design Blog, I, I feel like have th- those those seeds you planted really have have blossomed because yes. we see we do see uh, high quality binding, we see the high quality leather, but we also see things like single column readers editions and. So forth, That's right. and not and not just one or two publishers, but you see you see a specialty uh, house like like Allen, but uh, even a lot of the the more mainstream uh, Bible publishers have co opted a lot of those uh, a lot of the the traits that the boutique publishers uh, started using early,
0: right, and it's become. You know, if not, I mean, it's not mainstream. I mean, this is it's still a niche, but but much more uh, well known than it was. I mean, to the extent that, as I mentioned, you know, I was ordained relatively recently, I had to go back and finish seminary I'd started but not finished. And you know, just had this surreal experience of having professors uh, devote time to talking about how Bibles should be designed and stuff like that. and and it's a weird, kind of full circle moment, right. To be a student in a classroom being taught ideas that you were once considered a little bit crazy for advocating, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but it's, uh, it, it's a wonderful feeling at the same time. Uh, you yes, mainstream. I dream. Yes. And I did have professors who would bring their, their sort of beautiful, uh, Bibles to class still in the box. And uh, for protection, and and I, ch- I, I uh, chuckled. <laughs> I can,
1: I can, uh, I can sympathize with that. So, speaking of which, I have sitting beside me uh, right now three different Bibles. I mean, actually, I've got more than that, but three. I wanted to, I wanted mm-hmm. to use as, as examples. I have a uh, a a single column uh, Highland goatskin ESV from Allen. I have uh, the boxed Bibliotheca set, um, and I have the new Word on Fire Gospel edition, which I received for Christmas. So these are these are okay. three very different kind of Bibles uh, put out by different publishers. Yes, but I I don't think any of them would even could have existed thirteen years ago.
0: That's right. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right about that. And uh, so is is the Allen that you have the single column one is that the the Crossway Reader's Bible that they rebound or is it a different one?
1: Uh, yes, I think it is a Crossway because I have I have the Crossway that's the same text. Yes. Uh, and, and but this one is is, you know, it has the it has the multiple ribbon markers and it's the Highland design right. and so forth. It's, and it's and a, what
0: it's color a, what color is it?
1: It is. It is the dark brown.
0: Uh, yeah. So I have the exact same edition in a sort of mid brown in the bookcase next to me right now, and it's it's nestled just beneath the uh, older Crossway Legacy ESV in uh, green goatskin that I actually use for preaching. And I shouldn't even admit this, but the reason I use that bible is not that it's the one i absolutely prefer although i do love it it's it's because it's large enough that my sermon notes disappear when when put into it and <laughs> it's it's terrible to think that such considerations would motivate these choices but but they do and i think you know so so that edition definitely is one that that never would have existed in, let's say, like a pre-Bible design blog ethos, and Bibliotheca, you know, a multi-volume edition of Scripture in a reader-friendly format, Uh, you know, having multiple volumes was the solution to the problem of no longer having that wonderful opaque India paper. You know, if you could print on multiple volumes uh, then the the shortcoming of modern paper would be minimized. And when I raised that question with publishers, it was, you know, no one wants a multi-volume Bible. In fact, not only publishers, but I would ask the question on the blog, like how many of you would be interested in in this sort of thing? And, and it was like, no, I mean, nobody wants, how would you carry this thing around? You know, that kind of thing. And then it comes along and and people get to see it. And they're like, yes, we want this. We want more of it. And you mentioned the the word on fire, Gospels. That's um, I did not do a Christmas uh, gift list for first things this year. I've done them a few times before. But if I had, that would have been right at the top of the list of recommendations I would make. Because they're always asking um you know to offer like Roman Catholic friendly editions, and there just aren't many that
1: right, suggest- which I want to talk to you a little bit about I, I was just before we started talking, I was flipping through the bibliotheca, which i I had it had been a while since I'd looked at it and mm-hmm. and then uh, then looked at the word on fire and i I it's hard to imagine more uh, two more diametrically opposed editions hmm. in those so even hmm. though they're both multi-volume obviously the word on fire has only has one volume out so far but sure. the plan is to do the do the entire bible but the the bibliotheca is is minimalist to the extreme yes uh and 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 the word on fire is not minimalist no <laughs> at all no.
0: right and bibliotheca really is like if if uh you know like like a A European design house had made a Bible, but had never seen one and only knew (laughs) what, what art books look like, you know? And so there's, there's like a beautiful austerity, like a rigorous typographical discipline to that set that is to me astonishing. If you look at crossways, ESV readers' Bibles, you get there like a much more like popular interpretation of what a reader-friendly Bible would look like. So, so it's still on the minimal side in the way that a novel is, but it's somehow friendlier than than the Bibliotheca design, but but not as lofty, you know, not as as um, yeah. austere in in. And when I say austere, I'm as a Calvinist, I mean something really good. Right. That's that's, that's, <laughs> a, that's a virtue. That's a virtue. And and then of course, word on fire, you're you're getting a, a very different sort of aesthetic, let's say. That, a very, that very different aesthetic. It. Yeah. But at the same time, I think, you know, what they have in common though is that that, that sort of the aesthetic story of the building has been opened. And that it's possible to ask those questions and sort of think about what the aesthetic should be. And, you know, I think 20 years ago, if you had raised the question of aesthetics in Bible publishing, people would have thought you were being irreverent. You know, that, that, you know, aesthetics is frivolous or something. And and it took a long time, especially, you know, when I, I started this, the only answer to the question of readability was was to retranslate. And when I started writing about the design of Bibles, I remember a lot of people who were translators or at least, let's say, active in that community who would criticize that emphasis on aesthetics as superficial when what you really need to do is retranslate, you know? Right. And we just need,
1: we need to infinitely retranslate.
0: Yes, right. And so I think there's a... You know, like you know, I was saying earlier about uh, you know having a philosophical perspective and doing great art. Th- these two things don't have to be separate; they can go together. Uh, but it does require you to take, let's say, aesthetic questions more seriously, and um, and and we're seeing that happen now.
1: Now, you had some influence on the uh, the the young men who were involved in designing uh, the word on fire, what, what sort of advice did you give them?
0: You know, it's interesting. I I think through the blog, I've had a lot of influence, uh, generally, although I would say like, I, I, I don't think of myself as having been like the founder of a movement so much as like a, uh, fellow traveler, if that makes sense. You know, like, I, I don't feel like any advice I've ever given was, was, was more than just common sense. Um, as f- you know, I, I love reader friendly design. I love classic typography. Um, I, I dislike fussy, uh, like so-called postmodern typography that calls attention to itself and and that sort of thing. but, but, you know, there's there's nothing unique about my ideas in terms of um, you know originality. I, I think it's more about the application of these ideas into the area of designing bibles, and you know, so I don't want to I don't want to downplay like you know if you're listening and, and need someone to come in and be a, a consultant on on your your publishing project or something, you know, I'm not downplaying my, my unique set of skills, but at the same time, at the same time, I,
1: you're, you're undercutting your ability to sell
0: out. You need to. uh, to Yes. Right. Right. But, you know, I think like the relationship I've had and, and, you know, with publishers over time in various ways, you know, I, I felt, you know, a lot of times with, at least with the larger publishers that, you know, my role was just to say, you know, the designers who work for you are actually right about what they've been telling you. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's easier to hear from the outside than from the inside, you know? And so, you know, I've found myself in the weird position of, you know, speaking as an authority on a subject that, that really I'm a passionate amateur and and w- would hate to... Um, I don't know, just would hate to overrule sort of the creativity of someone who's devoted themselves to this, you know? So, so I think there's a lot of stuff in, in Bible design, especially now that we're seeing this kind of flourishing that, that I wouldn't do, you know, and there's a a lot of things that we've seen uh, in, uh, in, I don't know, various projects recently that, that I look at and I think you know, this is not the way, this is not what I would, uh, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't read it, that sort of thing. But I still respect that creativity and I'm excited about where those ideas could lead, you know? And so I think that that's my, um, you know, in a nutshell, I would say I've, I've tried to give as much as I can really good advice. Um, Sometimes it's taken sometimes, you know, very creative people for, for reasons that are, are good, go in different directions. The main thing though, is that, that this overall sort of embarrassment of riches continues. And so you see this movement, which really has begun and and largely exists within evangelical publishing, branching out and having a greater influence. And so I think you will see, um, more interest in you know editions of the bible in the roman catholic world or uh, in orthodoxy in mainline protestantism that's another uh you know if i had a nickel for every email i'd gotten from a mainline protestant saying why are there no quality editions of the nrsv Um, right you know right and and i was going
1: to ask you i was going to ask you about that i mean because you've it's clear that the I guess the ESV has kind of been the the translation of choice. Uh, yes. And I, I think obviously the people who are who, who have been the drivers of purchasing a lot of uh, of these high end Bibles have have latched onto the ESV. And, and that's largely been represented, represented in, in evangelical to maybe a little bit higher church evangelical uh, circles. But you've really, you really have seen a lag uh, of quality Bible publishing from what I have seen in Catholic circles. And you would think, uh, you know, going back to say illuminated manuscripts, for example, that that they would be interested in in high quality aesthetically pleasing bible publishing as well
0: you would but i think there's there's a lot of curious factors you know so so there's the one is like just simple supply and demand um the the demand for bibles for for like lay people um uh, is just much greater in the evangelical world than it is outside of it. And and that's, you know, uh, if you're making dollars and cents kind of calculations, uh, you're much better off creating something that that market will want. And I think that's why you see some of these, uh, additions looking the way that they do. And that's one factor. But then you also have, and here I I think of like Flannery O'Connor and Mystery and Manners where, uh, you know, she distinguishes between the kind of uh, novelist she is and what she calls, you know, in quotes, the Catholic novelist. Um, we're, We're... yeah, there's that sense of like the Catholic novelist she wants to be and aspires to, which is an artist. But then there's this this other thing that's that's a little more kitschy and a little more, uh, what's the word? Um, well, kind of the equivalent of what we were talking about earlier with right. Christian yeah, fiction. Right. You know, it's it's the. The part where you know she says the word Christian has become uh, you know of little value because it's come to mean just a person with a heart of gold, you know, the sort of sentimentality, that sort of thing. And so, I think you know, for me, having grown up in you know Louisiana, sort of in in uh kind of a Roman Catholic culture, the, the my Catholic friends that the the stream they swam in was was more what she would have seen as that kitschy moralistic one. And, and I can totally understand where that world like, it's equivalent in the evangelical world is well served by, by cheap, kitschy Bibles that don't often get read. And so there's not maybe that upper story demand for this other thing. And, and I think that's, you know, that's been the the challenge with mainline Protestant editions as well. It's just that it's a, it's a smaller group of people interested in this particular thing. But the beauty is, as it becomes, you know, more readily available then the question people keep asking is, Well, why don't we have something like this? And it right. turns out, you know, in this, this weird way that uh, the, the, the supply creates a demand. And uh, right, you so know, it, I, I, I
1: build it, and they will come idea.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And so, so I think, you know, you see it starting off small, but, but yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I, I, you think if, if you look at it, like, I don't know, you look at like a mid century breviary and think, you know, what happened? Like, like, why, why did the, you know, tradition that produced this incredibly complex and, and, and baffling and beautiful printed objects stop when did it lose its interest in the bible you know as as right. a object and and how can that be regained and i think the answer is in the same way that it was and is being regained everywhere else which is through these smaller more niche enterprises that then have an influence on the on the larger
1: ones right well, let's close with a discussion of some fun stuff uh, <laughs> that, that you and I share uh, share affinities for. A lot of this conversation yes. has has really just been stuff that you and I like. But that's right. really – that's one of the nice things about doing this podcast is, is really uh, at some point people may catch on that I just am having people on I want to talk to about stuff I want to talk about. So that's, <laughs> that, that, that's how – that's how complex this, this podcast is. Um, But you and I have what an affinity for what I will call some of the finer things in life. Uh, Of course, uh, the problem that both of us have is that we have the proverbial uh, champagne taste beer budget. Yes. Nonetheless, uh, just as there are fine Bibles, there are fine other things. And, uh, and so, we like old books and bags and briefcases and oddball yeah. accoutrement out there. Uh, what uh, I know that you are particularly a uh, an aficionado of of bags, leather bags, luggage, that sort of thing. So what uh, what right. are you currently carrying? Because I know that it it shifts with the wind.
0: <laughs> it does and and this very morning i i received something new but uh oh,
1: very good. good timing
0: yeah so it's it's interesting you know i i think uh over the last six months or so uh i've been doing kind of a downsizing and i ended up getting rid of a lot of briefcases leather bags that sort of thing and uh, and and kind of rethinking like what I wanted to do. And so the lineup that I have right now is actually pretty new, but reflects kind of tastes that I had for a while. So, so just to give an idea, um, you know, in the same way that I'm fascinated with leather bindings of books and that sort of thing, I've always been interested in, in like quality leather goods and how they're made and briefcases to me are just one of those things that, uh, you know, maybe because of my generation, you just equate with like style and, and coolness, which, yeah, you know, I, I was the kid with the briefcase in school who thought it made me look cool. It probably <laughs> says all you need to know. And so, so of course, you know, like you, I have some of those classic bridal leather cases that, uh, that, you know, aren't necessarily practical in the modern world, but but why does anything need to be practical? So Correct. you know, you you and I both have um these uh RF Clark bridal leather briefcases. I've got the yes. the one with the two buckles and sort of the dark brown leather. I love that thing. Right. Uh, yes, I, I have
1: also, that. that one.
0: I have a larger uh tan one. That is kind of a you know like Swain Aidney Brig, but not right. kind of a, a not a knockoff, but like a lesser brand, but equal quality. And I I, I love them both, but but I actually uh, sold off a few things, and what I ended up buying to replace them was you remember uh, so Frank Clegg when he started off it was Lodaf and Clegg, and then the two brands separated. And I got the Lodaf version of their sort of classic briefcase. So the style of it is like the classic, uh, you know, flap over bag with the two straps, but it's executed in this thick, really soft, um, probably cowhide kind of grainy. And it gives sort of the, for me, the, the style and feel of those classic bags, but the softness of the leather makes it less formal. Mm -hmm. And so I, I don't feel like if I'm carrying it, that there's a spotlight shining on that bag everywhere I go. So it's a lot subtler, but still satisfying.
1: Now, will and this so, be coming to an Instagram feed near us soon?
0: <laughs> it should. It really should. Uh, it, you know, it's funny how that is. Like, you, you think, yeah, I should take a picture of this. And then somehow it just doesn't happen. But but, uh, but yeah, and it's, you know, what I went with was like the dark sort of chocolate brown, uh, very, I would say, unostentatious, uh, the opposite of kind of the the bright tan, look at me kind of bags, but simply because, you know, I, I had a lot of those and found myself wanting something that, that wasn't, uh, you know, wasn't the star of the show. Kind of like, you know, if, if you're into shoes, you can become fixated on, uh, you know, the, the things that make a shoe exceptional so that every time you wear that pair of shoes, it's the only thing people see. And
1: I, I have no idea what you're talking about. Right, right. Yeah. I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure
0: you know people who
1: <laughs> have I, these problems. I have, but I have yeah. heard of people like that.
0: Yes, yes. And and it's that I, you remember like there was a, a a trend for like shoes that were like the color of band-aids. <laughs> yes. And I just really, really light tan. And and uh, and I do have a pair, but I can't really wear them without like complete self-consciousness because you're just aware it really stands out. So that's how I felt with bags. I wanted to go a little more subtle. I still have like a, like a wax canvas Filson bag, you know, for more casual uh, use, but for, for more of a dressed up thing, this soft leather bag has been the go-to. I think maybe because I, I just don't think I can do any better on Bridal leather bags. The two that I have are kind of perfect, and so I was just looking for how to fill that niche in between.
1: So about a decade or so ago, I was living in Kansas City, and, yeah. uh, and you came through town on one of your uh, your summer tours, right. and uh, and stopped at uh, at a, a little place I used to go to that is actually no longer in business called Rick's Kansas City. And they had a surprising, uh, a surprising inventory. I guess we'll say at the time. And uh, what I, I believe you ended up with a few odds and ends from that. Uh, from that, point. right?
0: Yeah. So I, I tell this story a lot because uh, Alan. I don't know if if listeners realize this, but you are like the truffle hunter of the thrift stores. <laughs> I don't. I don't know how you find the things that you find because. Uh, I've attempted to emulate your abilities and they've come nowhere close. And so uh, I remember you suggesting that we go check this place out in this very sort of undistinguished storefront. And I just thought, you know, okay, fine. You know, it'll be, it'll be fun. Having no clue what a Aladdin's cave of stuff this was going to be, you know, and they had, boxes and boxes of uh I guess uh liquidated inventory from the Venanzi store in New York right. and the Venanzi
1: store in New York.
0: Yeah. And so you know I got a a beautiful umbrella with the solid uh stick. And you know that's that's a, a that was an obsession of mine for a while. I have way too many umbrellas. But uh Gloves, you know, I I live in South Dakota and and we have, you know, glove weather six months out of the year. And I left that place with, I don't know, maybe six pairs of gloves, handmade Italian gloves with the the price tag still on them. And I mean, some of these would have sold for like upwards of two hundred dollars. A decade ago, you know, and, right. and, and they were selling them for just ridiculous amounts. And, and, you know, and, and they're all unusual colors, you know, so I've got some bright yellow gloves, I've got some orange, orange peccary gloves with, with cashmere lining and, and uh, yeah, just, just amazing stuff. And once in a lifetime kind of,
1: oh, know, it was, it was, yeah, he, he was uh, just sort of an old school tailor. He, he, uh, cause that I, I discovered that shop because I needed to find a tailor in Kansas city to, to tailor all the various things I bought at thrift stores, mm-hmm. which I can find good things, but they usually need a tailor. Uh, sure. And so I started using them as a tailor shop, but they also sold a lot of new goods that they purchased liquidated sort of a, from jobbers, that kind of thing. And, mm-hmm. and, and very high end things as well. They had Oxford suits and, And uh, in fact, one time I went in there and he said, check out, uh, check out this new Oxford suit that I got in. It was, it was custom, uh, it was custom made for the, the governor of Illinois. And uh, so I went and looked at it and inside the pocket was, uh, was the name Blagojevich. Uh, (laughs) They had... They had an Oxford suit for for Blagojevich. And I was like, "Well, you know, who's ever heard of this guy?" But right. uh, and in but, the other
0: pocket, there was an envelope of unmarked
1: bills. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, exactly. I I didn't know enough to check that, but uh, but this <laughs> but, but it was apparently a suit. I guess they had made for him. He he hadn't gotten. I don't know how they ended up with it. It was a new suit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they but they would get things like this. And so Rick, who um, who actually passed away uh, some years ago, but. Rick uh, told me one time when I walked in to bring some sport coat or something. I'd thrifted, you know, Brooks Brothers sports coat or something. And uh, and he said, have you ever heard of a store called Venanzi in New York? And I was like, <laughs> yeah, I've heard of it. Uh, I was probably the only person in Kansas City who had, but I had heard of it. And uh, and Venanzi was just this super high-end
0: uh, right.
1: uh, uh, boutique that sold... Literally the nicest things you could buy, and it was so boutiquey that it that it was too expensive for New York. It was just, uh, and apparently, you know, it was just sort of the proverbial place that you go into, and you know, and they they decide whether you're you're worth their time to wait on kind of places. Well, right, that kind of place ultimately apparently isn't sustainable even in New York. Uh, but they so they went out of business, and Rick, who was just this. You know, just this tailor uh, from a long line of tailors in Kansas City uh, in, a, as you said, an unremarkable storefront on the Kansas side of Kansas City. in uh, just this kind of the strip mall. He, of course, had probably a lot more money than Venansi did. And so I don't know how he even found out about it, but he bought all the liquidated stock from the Venansi store. So it just got all shipped to kansas city to this little shop that i happened to go to and he's like yeah i just bought all that stuff they're shipping it here and i, I you know my my jaw just dropped open and uh, i was actually there the day that the edward green shoes came in and and literally was taking these these edward green shoe boxes out of the shipping box <laughs> just uh, right. you know that, that that sort of thing doesn't happen and right. uh, and he they had stock oh for for a long time but they were just you know Scottish sweaters, Scottish cashmere sweaters and those the umbrellas you were talking about and sure. uh, these super high end sport coats and uh, selling them for you know pennies on the dollar which still not all it wasn't necessarily dirt cheap all of it but pretty close so uh, that was that was a uh, a find that will will never be. Uh, that will never be repeated. I'm afraid.
0: Yeah. So, no, I I think it was uh, right. Just just a once in a lifetime opportunity. But you know, I always think uh, like my definition of of friendship. You know, a, a friend is someone you go to the bookstore with. You know, who knows that the most important thing is to be looking for books, not not talking. And correct. You know, I I, I think this takes that to another level. You know, I mean, <laughs> it, it's. It's just when when someone takes you into the cave where all of these goods are displayed uh, you know that that friendship has occurred
1: that's right that's right. well i I try to I try to take care of people and I'm always good at helping other people spend their money if, if anybody <laughs> needs, needs direction on how to do that I'm very skilled, that's, right. that's uh, at, right at doing that so you had mentioned earlier about uh, about the relative merits of of thrift book buying versus bookstore used bookstore store right buy. And, Yeah I mean uh, they both they certainly both have have their their benefits I think
0: Yeah and and I've been to both you know th- this sort of experience and the bookstore experience with you and so I think that's where you know to compare, like when you find that once in a lifetime thing, you know, the, in the the thrift store, the the Rod goyevich Oxford special, uh, versus in the bookstore, you know, how do you compare, sort of the the excitement? <laughs> <laughs> I,
1: I will say it is rare to find really nice things, uh, it, really nice books in in uh, a thrift store. Now you can find very good books, and occasionally sure. you can find first editions. I once, I once uh, found a uh, an autographed uh, edition of of uh, a Gore Vidal novel, uh, hmm. which is not something I expected to find in the thrift store in Birmingham, <laughs> Alabama. At the time, I don't even, you know, who who there reads Gore Vidal, but um, your your chances of finding something extraordinarily nice clothing wise at a, at a thrift store much higher than finding something extraordinarily nice uh, in the book section. Uh, And I've found, you know, I've found a few, you know, like leather bound Eastern press editions, that sort of thing. That's kind of the top end typically Mm -hmm. of of what you can find uh, book wise. You know, I find good, just reader editions of, of books all along and occasionally you, you'll find a collectible level first edition, but not terribly often. Uh, a lot of people's reading habits are, as you know, not great. Um, right. Sort of, uh, of course, the, the, with the new chain of uh, half-priced books, you've got a little bit of, uh, of kind of, a, of an amalgam between thrift and used bookstore uh, that, that you can scare up some things occasionally there, pretty cheap. Uh, if if you know what you're looking for,
0: yeah, I I think my best half price books find was an autographed P G Woodhouse novel. Oh, which I thought was an unusual kind of thing to find. Um, I would agree. I mean, they they had it in their sort of special books section, but it was still yeah, the you know
1: style section they had they they call yes. it here.
0: Yes, right, right, and you know, I thought, well, I've got a, I've got to rescue this thing. Absolutely, it's that's what it uh, is. You have
1: to understand that you're on a rescue mission, right? Uh, That's what this. I mean, that's what this podcast is all about: is to uh, that's right, yeah. Make those kinds of rescues. If you see a Wodehouse assigned Wodehouse in a half price book, then then your duty is clear.
0: That's right. You have a moral obligation. I mean, I I felt that a few times. You know, I, there's a, a, an antique store in Rome, Georgia, that is now down one print of General Grant, because it's in my office, not because I wanted a print of General Grant necessarily, but because it was on the floor when uh, <laughs> all all of the Confederate generals were up on the the walls I, I was and gilded.
1: I would think that you could get a really good deal on a general glass yes. uh, portrait yes. in Rome, Georgia.
0: I got a <laughs> I got a fantastic deal, and and I believe the scowl from the shop attendant was thrown in for free.
1: <laughs> but, well, uh, she was, I, I'm sure she was glad to get rid of it.
0: Yes, that that probably true, probably true. Purchases, but she was I, originally purchased as part of a lot. I'm sure. Yes. I, you know, my, it's funny when you think about sort of bibliophile scores, uh, the, the one that I, uh, maybe it, it might not be like my best find ever, but the one that means the most to me, uh, when I was in Seattle, I don't know, 15 years ago, I bought the poet Denise Levertov's collection, of Francois Mauriac's novels in English translation. Oh, wow. And they are these beautiful, I think, and Spottiswood printed volumes. And it was, you know, the, the bookseller had uh, purchased these from her estate, I guess. And so it was, I didn't go in looking for Mariac. uh, you know, like, <laughs> like but... The combination, you know, he—he's a sort of great early twentieth-century Catholic French novelist, and just the connection to her—I uh, was intrigued, and so they still have a pride of place on my shelf. Every every uh, time I reorganize, they—they they are prominently displayed.
1: what well. Kind of well I'll tell my, my most serendipitous. Oh, and by the way, Levikov yeah. made a bit of a cameo in the, um, in the podcast, when we talked about uh, Merton and Barry uh, back in November with Dan Rattel. Uh, but uh, the most serendipitous find that I ever made was in a little bookstore in Chattanooga. This was, I don't know, probably 25 years ago, I guess, uh, when I back back in the days when I traveled with a road atlas and there were no cell phones, that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> but so I would, I would, uh, you know, look in phone books to find used bookstores. That's the sort of, that's the sort of thing that, that I right. used to do, that that one used to do. And so I found this little used bookstore in, in uh, Chattanooga. Uh, and I was checking sort of my usual authors list, which usually includes Wendell Berry, especially if I'm out of Kentucky, because things will pop up uh, sometimes cheaply. And I came across this, uh, this ex-library edition of The Hidden Wound, which was a, a, a nonfiction book he wrote uh, dealing with the issues of racism in around 1970 or so. Mm. And, uh you know it's not it, it's not a common uh, a book of his but it's ex library so immediately you know you sort of disqualify it from from um, a proper bookshelf but I I pulled it out to look at it and it had been discarded from uh, Swanee uh, College Swanee University hmm. University of the South in Swane mm-hmm. uh, but it had a book plate in it that the book had been donated to uh, Swanee by Alan Tate. So there was a book plate, uh, that the book had been donated to Swanee by Alan Tate. And then they had just discarded that and it had ended up at this uh. Chattanooga bookstore. So I bought it, you know, $5 or something like that. And, uh, a few years ago, I, I took it, uh, with me to, uh, on a, on a visit to see Wendell Berry and took that book to have, to show it to him to, and to have him sign it. I wasn't entirely sure if he would sign it because I had a book that had been discarded from a library, and so mm-hmm. I don't—I
0: mm-hmm.
1: I didn't know if, as an author, that's something he would be thrilled to see. But he has always been an admirer of Alan Tate, and and he and Tate had a correspondence, you know, back in I guess the '60s. He, of course, he was unaware that Tate had, had donated this volume to the Swanee Library. And he uh, talked to me for a long time about how moving it was to him that uh, that Tate had donated that book to the Swanee Library and how much Tate and Tate's work had meant to him. And, and then he wrote this really lovely uh, inscription uh, in it. And so for me, that is one of the... Uh, one of the best finds I ever made. And it's not necessarily mm. worth a lot as a fine right. edition, but as an association copy for me and my interest personally, it's, it's kind of, it's pretty hard to top, uh, at this point. Uh, the only thing better would be if, if Tate himself had written in it, but, um, so that's something that, that I certainly treasure.
0: Right. And I think it's also, I mean, it, it really does capture, um, uh, I want to say like the mystique of, of the bookstore, you know, that, that, that institution that, you know, we used to kind of discover through investigation in the phone book. And then you, you kind right. of go into this Warren of, of disorganization and, and, you know, unsearchable stacks of books, no, no way to just plug in your search term and find what you're looking for. The exploration exactly. involved and, and all of that, that there is a, there's a, a, a relationship to those physical objects. That's very different from, from uh, I, I, you just, you can't have that relationship with the work in the abstract.
1: It's right. not quite oh, the I, same. Yes, I agree. And that's, you know, that's one of the great things you and I, I think uh, have have a great appreciation for the physical object whatever it is uh, and something that's analog and it it there's a sense i guess in which you um In which you earn it a little bit more in looking for books that way, as and as it is with thrifting as well. uh, Rather than just going to eBay, you feel like you've you've put in your time and somehow this, you know, I've earned this item (laughs) that I that I have serendipitously come across and uh, and rescued once again this this cultural debris that has been cast aside. So
0: right, right. Well, Mark, I well go ahead.
1: ahead I I was just.
0: Yeah, I was just going to say that 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 sort of platonic ideal of, of a bookstore in downtown Jackson, Mississippi, uh, a number of years ago, I found myself inside one of these places. And it was, uh, you, you walk in and you immediately see that, that there's no order to this. There are books stacked everywhere in every available spot. Um, there was actually certain, like, like caverns in the bookstore that were not illuminated and the owner would give uh, you a flashlight so that you that, could go that is and ideal them. and i mean this guy was wonderful because you know he he refused to pay the price to replace the fluorescent bulbs <laughs> and just handed out you know flashlights and and as you explored you might find you know a discarded bag of chips and a coke can or something from you know when he'd settled in months earlier and forgotten them but there was a woman who was dutifully organizing the books you know and, and one little room giving some some kind of structure and she was really helpful as we were looking for different kinds of things and and we assumed she worked there and then <laughs> found out through the course of the conversation that she was a customer who came in from time to time to organize because nice. she loved this place so much and wanted people to be able to find what they were looking for. And uh, that combination of of like the bookstore owner who on principle will not <laughs> have the lights replaced when they burn out. And yet the customer who will come in and and contribute in that way. I thought that this is the perfect. Uh, nothing about this should work. <laughs> right it is the kind of place that you walk in. There's just this thrill because you know that, that this is the kind of place it would be possible to discover something in. Yes. You know, that, we, that here things could be hidden that had not been easily found. And you might actually find something wonderful.
1: We had a place here in Lexington called Whittington's books. That was similar to that. Uh, mm. the owner would sit and play the banjo, uh, during the day. And, uh, if you took a wrong step you very likely could knock over a stack of you know a five foot stack of books very easily so those uh people today with too much a books experience don't don't truly appreciate the joys of of stores like that but uh, occasionally occasionally you can still find them out there somewhere and they're worth uh Worth visiting because that stock, I guarantee you, is not on the internet. You have to, you have to earn it. It is. uh, We will, we will consider that and and uh, a vote for the uh, the embodied and incarnational. I think rather than uh, than the abstract.
0: Absolutely. Um,
1: well, Mark, I appreciate you being on. I've enjoyed it. We could keep going, but we've probably lost all of our listeners at this point anyway. <laughs> uh, so thanks to the people who held on. Uh, and perhaps we can uh, we can do this again. We need to get together and, uh, and, Definitely. and go shopping.
0: Definitely. Definitely. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, thanks for being on.
0: Thank you, Alan.